This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today our guest is Andy Moy. Andy is a seasoned commercial leader and corporate development executive who has worked across the molecular diagnostics, biotechnology, and life sciences industry. He is currently Chief Executive Officer at PAGE and previously served as Chief Commercial Officer, where he led the company's clinical sales and commercial strategy including the U.S. launch of Page Prostrate, the first and only AI-based pathology product to receive FDA approval for in vitro diagnostics use in detecting cancer in prostate biopsies. Previously, Moy served as the head of commercial operations in North America and Latin America for the Digital and Computational Pathology Division of Philips delivering significant growth in both markets of the emerging business. Moy has also served in executive roles at leading healthcare companies, including McKesson, Keras Life Sciences, and Wafer Gen Biosystems, now part of Takara Bio. Prior to joining the industry, Moy served as a lieutenant and flight officer in the U.S. Navy, completing missions in Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, Europe, and South America. He received a PhD in health economics from Walden University, an MBA from the University of Florida, and a BS in psychology from the University of Arizona. This is a fascinating interview today. Andy has really uh, got a, an amazing life journey getting to the leadership role he is in now. Um, definitely on the cutting edge and innovation as far as coming up with the use for AI to really help mankind and, and help, um, help medicine. He just uh, really understands leadership, has a, has a lot of experience, um, and you can just hear his, the passion for his job and his voice and, and someone who I think uh, can really help us learn about how to do things the right way and how to lead our people forward. So enjoy this um, interview. I certainly did. Andy's an amazing guy, got a lot to offer. So. Let's just sit back and, uh, and listen to the discussion I had with Andy Moy. Andy, welcome to the program. It's really nice to have you on today. Hey, thanks so much, Steve. Really appreciate it. So just fill us in a little bit about uh, your background, uh, kind of, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, um, kind of your life journey a little bit, and uh, where you are today, just, as, uh, uh, con uh, just to let us know where we're at, and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Um... Yeah, thanks. It's been sort of a, a winding road, right? I think a lot of people uh, can appreciate that. And, um, you know, my journey to sort of being the CEO of an AI health tech company didn't go as a straight line. <laughs> so, you know, sort of sort of going back, I, my parents, you know, are, my mom was an English teacher. My dad was a soldier. You know, he ended up becoming an officer in the Army. We moved around a lot. I was born in Germany. Um, grew up mainly, uh, if I can say, the most of my my you know, childhood in El Paso, Texas, because there's a big army base there called Fort Bliss. 
And um, you know, it was a really interesting, you know, dynamic growing up, right? Not only you know, background of having a military father, but sort of moving around, but, but then El Paso is sort of a really unique place um, in the world as well, just with the demographics and everything. Um, when, when got my undergrad at the University of Arizona, I, I wanted to, to follow in my dad's footprint, uh, footsteps, I guess, and, and join the army. Uh, he told me that if I joined the army, he would disown me. That's nothing against my army brothers, but he told me that. And so I ended up I ended up going and flying airplanes for the Navy. So I, I went to what they call officer candidate school. Um, you know, that's kind of what you see from me, an officer and a gentleman, right? It's sort of a 13-week program. You, you come in a civilian, you come out an officer. And, and, I, and, you know, a lot of that, you know, I know we'll talk about leadership and all this kind of things today, but that's, that's you know, really forged a lot of my, you know, my, my leadership uh, outlook. Uh, eight years eight years flying airplanes for the Navy. Um you know, had had a young young son, got married, had a young son, you know, didn't want to continue deploying and, and going into combat and things like that. So, you know, got out, wanted to ensure that I knew a lot about the business world. I wanted to get back into healthcare. You know, my my service in the military and, and sort of the way I'm wired is is, you know, I really want to serve people. And so I thought, how can I do that? Try to do that through healthcare. Went and got a master's in business and MBA from University of Florida, go Gators. Um, and, and kind of started on this weird journey. I just, I, I happened to get in with this company called US Labs that had just gotten bought by a company called Laboratory Corporation of America, LabCorp. And, and started in this diagnostics, this cancer diagnostics journey that, you know, almost 20 years ago was, was pretty, you know, I've been around a long time, but it was really ripe for disruption and innovation. And that's what we've seen in the past 20 years. And so, you know, really, really thought about my career progression. How can I lead more people? How can I expand the sphere of influence? Um, went from being a sales rep to a manager, you know, moved to another company called Keras Diagnostics at the time, had a really innovative way of looking at treating cancers and diagnosing cancers. Um, really worked with some really luminary people looking back on it, really lucky to be part of that organization. Um, and really kind of went through a progression with some different companies. I, I've been part of four companies that all were bought. It's kind of the space that we're in, this diagnostic space. It tends to have a lot of buyers and sellers uh, as part of it. But continue to grow in my career and, and lead some pretty big organizations. I, I led the commercial operation for the Americas for Philips, which is a $20 billion company. Um, helped get them their FDA approval in digital pathology, worked for McKesson for a short period of time, working in real-world data, and ultimately landed landed here at Page. And, and I'll tell you more about Page in a minute, I guess. But Page is spun out of Memorial Sloan Kettering. It's, it's really this combination of data plus AI plus digital health technologies plus cancer diagnostics and then all of those things really coming together to impact patient care and it was really exciting uh, to be here. So I actually came into the organization as chief commercial officer, but uh, fortunate, you know, six to seven months later to be appointed by the board uh, as the CEO. And I've been the CEO for almost two years now. Wow, that's, that's quite a story. You've had your fingers in a lot of things. It, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 you know, just like uh, in my journey too, the thought of, uh, you know, where I started and then being the CEO of a significant major company, uh, I imagine that was not even on the radar at the time, but uh, here you are and serving in that role. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I think a lot of it, Steve, I wonder if you'd agree, is, is just being open. 
You know what I mean? Like just, just, you know, what's next? What's, what's interesting? Just sort of, just sort of being open. I, somebody explained it to me. Um, and I like the analogy. It's, it's expanding the surface area of luck. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's like being, you know, having as much surface area out there such that, you know, luck hits you or the opportunities find you or whatever. If, if you're sort of not exposing enough of yourself to the world, there's not enough surface area for luck to stick. I kind of like that analogy. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, you're the, I think you put it well, the, the willingness to try something or, you know, uh, as myself and probably you as well, you know, were we perfectly qualified and have experience to the CEO of a company? Probably not, but we're willing to, to get into that role and learn as we, we go and, and, uh, you know, uh, grab an opportunity that's in front of you. Now, I think if you're taking a new position and you're perfectly capable of doing it and you know everything about it, you get in there and you're like, oh, I've done this a million times. You're not really growing. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? you, exactly. you may be taking a position that, you know, was a sidestep or maybe a step down versus, you, you know, if you get in a position and you sort of think, oh, my gosh, how am I going to tread water and keep my head above water here? I've got so much to learn and so much to grow into. Oh, okay, now you're in a position of growth. <laughs> you know, now you're, now you're doing something that probably – um, you know, grows your career and, and all those kind of things. That's just, just how I think about it. That's for sure. You know, you mentioned it a little earlier, but I, I just have to feel like I have to ask you, being in healthcare myself, uh, yes. with your business background, why would you choose healthcare? Talk about a messy business operation. Um, it seems like other business approaches would be more straightforward and a little more predictable, but you chose healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question, you know, and, and certainly when you come out of the military, there are a lot of fields that are maybe sort of uh, what I'll call veteran, um, you know, veteran receptive, you know what I mean, that, that are, you know, logistics and, um, you know, the finance world, you know, really takes in a lot of veterans and, you know, because there's just, you know, and you think about, you know, companies like Home Depot or big veteran employers and things like that. And, you know, for, for me, again, it kind of goes back to this, um, this notion of service. You know, I, I think about how, how can I, when I wake up in the morning and, and go do the work, you know, I don't want to do it to, to serve myself, although we all do that, right? We all want to make money for our families and, and grow our careers, and we all have egos, and all those things are true. But I, I try to align, you know, my goals around, around service. And so when I was, you know, wanting to get out of the military, I'd always liked healthcare, you know, my, my undergraduate degrees in physiology. In fact, you know, like a lot of people, you know, I wanted to go to go to med school, but I, hey, let's go fly airplanes instead. Uh, you know, those kind of things. And so I said, yeah, let's let's dive back into healthcare. I, I think I think what's what's fortunate for me, and I'll just call it luck, quite frankly, is that I was able to land in this really unique space within healthcare, which is diagnostics, which is which is in particular cancer diagnostics in sort of this lab world, because it's not you know you could you could sort of land in surgery or uh, surgical devices or you know things that are you know a little bit more or pharmaceutical. Certainly, pharmaceutical companies hire a lot of veterans, without question. Um, but I didn't, and I, I sort of landed in this really unique space that I could grow grow into. And, and so I'm pretty thankful for that. But yeah, I think a lot of it, Steve, really just comes down to that, you know, that, that notion, I just want to serve people, you know, how can I help 
the most amount of people doing what I'm doing and not that, you know, selling hammers at Home Depot is a bad thing at all because everybody needs that. But I think certainly healthcare is an area where you can really impact people's lives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about Page AI a little bit. Tell us about that company sure. and uh, uh, what, what the mission is and, and uh, what your focus yeah. is. Yeah, thanks. You know, it's, you know, Page, uh, so P-A-I-G-E, we have the AI in the name and um, it's a spin out of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And about five or six years ago, you know, two founders, you know, one of which is, is our chief scientist and still, you know, uh, advising the company and the other is our chief medical officer today. But they both were at Memorial Sloan Kettering and, and they thought about how AI and artificial intelligence and, and digital technologies could impact cancer diagnostics. And maybe to give the listeners just a quick, you know, sort of primer on cancer diagnostics. So, um, you know, people think about, hey, I went to the doctor and, and they took a biopsy and then three weeks later I got, you know, I got cancer. And oh my gosh, you know, that the C, big C word. Well, there's a lot that happens between when you go and you get a biopsy and you get that, that answer, hey, you have cancer, you don't have cancer. And that's, that's all happens in a laboratory. It all happens in, um, in places they call anatomic pathology laboratories. And so that piece of tissue you know, gets, gets fixed in this, in this chemical. It then gets cut really thin or actually gets placed in a wax block and then it gets cut really thin. Uh, and then it gets laid on a glass slide and it gets stained with these chemicals called hematoxylin and eosin, they call it H-E-E. But, but, but that, that process, and then when you have a glass slide and those cells are available and a pathologist, a pathologist is a doctor who's been trained to look at tissue under a microscope um, that pathologist then looks at those slides and makes a diagnosis of cancer. And, and frankly, that process where that tissue gets taken, you know, put in a jar, cut thin, all that stuff, the same process that's been done for the last about a hundred years, you know, not a whole, some automation in there, not a whole lot, but generally that's the way it's been done for the past hundred years. And, and what you get out of that glass slide, is really only that of which the pathologist, whether he or she knows what their expertise is, what their training is, you know, some pathologists are experts in, you know, prostate cancer, some, some pathologists are experts in, in breast cancers, some pathologists are what they call generalists, and that's really the majority of the United States are these generalists, they try to see everything, and it's complicated, right, it's a very complex, it's, it's biology and, and chemistry and physiology all coming together. So what does Paige do? We think about a world where instead of that pathologist looking at that glass slide under a microscope, what if you digitize that glass slide? So now the information that's on the slide is digital. You can look at it on a screen. You can use software to manipulate that slide. And then you can use AI to recognize the patterns that are in the tissue to help that pathologist do his or her job in a way that they really have never been able to do it before. Um, and so we, 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 we sell products today. The first product is a software to do just that, to digitize those slides for those pathologists to look at the tissue on the screen. And then we have these AI applications and the first AI application, and we have the only FDA approved AI application in the space is called Page Prostate. And what Page Prostate does is it, it points to the area on the slide where the, where the, the, uh, the slide might have cancer. And it draws the pathologist's eyes to that area 
and says, yes, there's, there, there's specifically for cancer on this slide, there's not. And in all of our studies, the ability for the pathologist, so the human being using the AI tool, and we think about AI as that, as really as a tool, uh, always increases. Their ability to see cancer always goes up. There's what they call sensitivity. So their sensitivity to seeing cancer on, this, on the slide is always better <laughs> using using AI than if they had done it by themselves. And, and that's, you know, at, at the end of the day, pathologists, all doctors are people. Um, they're prone to human errors. Um, there's been some studies that have said, you know, upwards of 20% of cancer diagnosis could be wrong or could be misclassified. So we, we, we imagine a world and envision a world, and, and this is what our mission is all about, is to transform cancer diagnostics through AI and help these doctors um, you know, give a diagnosis of cancer, not miss anything, reduce the errors, but also provide more information about how that cancer could and maybe should be treated uh, for that patient. And, and the FDA, you know, when they, when they sort of issued the FDA uh, approval, uh, we have this great quote and we have it up on our, our walls of our office. And it's that, you know, they really believe that this technology ultimately will save lives. And that's, that's a big thing for us. It's a big part of our mission at PAGE. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm interested what uh, your your normal pathologist thinks of this. Do they look at it as, <laughs> this is great, this is exciting, or are they threatened that it's going to take my job away or that it's going to, yeah, you know, what, what's what's their take on it? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's it's sort of the question of the day, isn't it, right? Even, even outside of healthcare. You know, is AI going to take my job? <laughs> right. So, you have you know GPT four and ChatGPT and and all these other other things that are going on. Um, you know, we I think the majority of pathologists recognize AI uh, as a tool. That um, you know, there's a couple other big things happening in pathology that I think is important to note. The first is that because of the aging population because of the actually the awareness of cancer and cancer screening, the prevalence and the incidence of cancer, I think uh, the numbers I saw from the National Cancer Institute is by 20, let's see, 2050, uh, there will be 50% more cancers diagnosed in 2050 than there are today, right? So today about 2 million new cancers are diagnosed in the United States every year. You're talking about 3 million in 20 years or so. Uh, that's a lot of work and oh, by the way, you know, just because you get a biopsy, most of the time the biopsy is benign, meaning there's no cancer there. So there's millions and millions of more work for the pathologist to have to do over the course of the next 10 or 15 years. And that's that's really stressful for these doctors. I mean, doctor burnout is real. Uh, and so they're stressed out by the workloads. And then and then the problem too is that whether it's related to COVID or it's related to other, other factors, but less and less people are entering the medical doctor workforce, you know, physician workforce. So there's a huge gap between the work that needs to be done by pathologists and the number of pathologists, and that that gap is widening, unfortunate. So, you know, for sure there are pathologists who think, man, this AI could, could steal my job, but I think most of them are starting to be like, hey, we need the help, right? We, we need the, the, the efficiency support and, and, and these tools that can help me maybe do some routine things faster are, are welcomed, I think. Yeah, well, I suppose there's always that piece that with a really experienced physician and, and seeing all kinds of things, and then you have that gut instinct of what this may or may not be, and 
you know, you can you can make the right diagnosis sometimes on that. But I would also think it's equally true that there you just can't put that amount of information in a brain and, and sort it and figure it out <laughs> and whatever where AI can yeah. certainly do that. So I could definitely see the benefit. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. And I you know it's one of those things too with in the medical community, um, that's a challenge and we work with doctors every day and and of course, they want to be the trusted expert. But you know, I think one of the one of the biggest values that you know, physicians have said to us, these pathologists have said to us about the technology is that you know, and I've had a doc, you know pathologist say to me, you know, Andy, that you know my biggest concern at night and what keeps me up at night is that I may I may go through an entire prostate biopsy and not find any cancer, and I'll and I'll send that report back and I'll say there's no cancer there. And I'll go home at night and I'll have my dinner and I'll sit there with my, you know, my husband or my wife or whatever. And I'll think about that. And I'll think, did I miss something? Did I, did I possibly miss, you know, a little area of cancer in that slide? And that's, you know, that's what we try to, to help alleviate. The AI is a tool, you know, pathologists can go through that entire thing and then, you know, consult the AI. And if the AI says, yeah, I don't see anything either. You know, <laughs> I can go and have, have dinner, you know, with my spouse later and, and feel and sort of sleep at night. So there's a lot of that going on. You know, another thing that comes to mind is you brought up, uh, you know, uh, physician burnout. And, you know, in, in, uh, in my uh, field as well, physical therapy, you know, there's just, uh, there is a lot of burnout. A lot of it has to do with the amount of administrative paperwork that has to be documented and done for each and every uh, thing you do. And, and uh, in thinking about this uh, before today, I, I was thinking, I wonder if AI could help in that area as well. You know, can we reduce the, the note-taking or the analytical, you know, yeah. you know, can AI help us in that way? Because if it could, I think, wow, I think you'd have a lot of medical practitioners say this is the greatest thing since ice cream. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, there's no question. There's no question. Um, you know, one of our partners, you know, to give Microsoft the plug, but I'm happy to, they're, they're a really good partner for us. But, you know, they, they have a, a division called Nuance, and, and one of Nuance's really cool products is this thing called Dragon Ambient Experience. And if you've ever, I, I went to the doctor this morning, I had my annual physical just by chance, and, you know, the, what, the, what the doctor did is brought their laptop in, put the laptop on the counter, and and typed while he was asking me questions, you know, okay, you know, do you smoke, you know, and and never looked me in the eye, you know, not one time. And so that's the administrative burden that you have. And so, you know, Microsoft is this, and Nuance is this really cool thing called DAX. And what it is, is it's AI on your phone. You put your phone on the on the counter, you say, hey, Steve, I'm going to record this interaction and use AI to transcribe it. Okay, and then you're just talking. You say, hey, Steve, how you doing? You know, tell me what's happening today. Oh, you hurt your shoulder. How did that happen? Oh, skiing accident. Okay. Hey, I'm going to prescribe this. And hey, come back in six weeks and all stuff. And what's happening on the phone and in the application is that it's capturing all of that dialogue. It's then creating what they call a clinical note, meaning, you know, that thing that a doctor would have to spend hours at the end of the day typing in. Okay, talk to Steve, blah, 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 blah. And it's capturing all that stuff in a way like a doctor wrote it. And not only that, it's it heard you say, hey, I, I'm going to prescribe something for you. Your pharmacy is the CVS. It went ahead and fired off the prescription. It went ahead and scheduled your appointment for six weeks from now. And all of that documentation is done. 
right? So now that doctor is all that person. And, and oh, by the way, the doctor did what the doctor was trained to do and probably got the medicine for it, which was interact with you. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Looked you in the eye and talked about and And, oh, by the way, this thing's really cool because, like, you know, let's say, hey, Steve, how's your family? Oh, you know, just stuff that's probably not relevant to the clinical note completely ignores it. Right, completely ignores, knows the difference between, you know, jibber jabber and just, you know, small talk and and what's relevant for the history and physical. So uh, really cool technologies that are out there. Uh, that's one of them. I think for us on the pathology side, the biggest piece for pathologists is, is reporting. They have to make a report that ultimately goes to, a you know, a your doctor, your family doctor or your oncologist or whoever. And that's also very tedious. And so we see and we're already embedding workflow where the AI is um, is pre-populating those reports, right? It's It's gone through the tissue. It's sort of made its preliminary diagnosis. I use air quotes, you can't see me do that, but using air quotes, you know, preliminary diagnosis. And it's sort of pre-populated that report. And so now that pathologist, instead of again, having to dictate or type it out, can look at the tissue, look at the report, say, yeah, I agree, and, and fire that report off. I, I think, that's where the workflow is really, the AI is really going to help change the workflow. You're spot on on that. And, and I don't know as much about AI, obviously, as you do, but to me, that seems like it's more of a simpler application than the diagnosis of the complicated yeah. cancers and whatever. So why aren't we there? Is it, what's, what's the hang-up? Who's, who's blocking it? Why, why, why isn't that just normal right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's 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 a couple questions. I'll I'll kind of tackle them two ways. The first is the technology. Um, you know, these large language models and these ability, this ability for AI to sort of understand the nuances of of human communication, especially verbal communication and written, right? The same way you like use ChatGPT. You know, this is really a breakthrough that's happened in the past year, and that's come with some technological advancements. It's also come with an awful lot of computing power. Yeah, just just lots and lots of, uh, of GPUs, they call them, to, to help compute this stuff. So the technology hasn't really, there's been some iterations of it, some, some help, but I think now we're in this era where AI uh, is so good and, and really can, can hear the nuances and translate what the doctor's looking for that I think we really will start to see an inflection point in some of those things. I think secondarily, look, healthcare and physicians they're always the last to adopt the new technology. It just, yeah. it just is, you yeah. know, um, I mean, most, I say most, I mean, a lot of healthcare facilities in this country still use fax machines. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, no I mean, question. Uh, no, it's crazy. The last time you fired off a fax, right? But they still use yeah. fax machines. You know, my, you know, there, you know, there are still physician offices out there who still use, you know, old paper charts and paper records. So it's just, it's just a difficult, you know, space. And, and, and while new technology is really awesome. Um, most healthcare systems and, and doctors, they look at it from sort of a different lens. And they, there's really, there's really three things that I think drive new technology adoption in healthcare. And the first is it's got to be better for patient care, right? There's got to be some clinical evidence that what it is. And, and administration is better for clinical care because, you know, a doctor can look at you in the eye, like we talked about, and have this conversation. So I think that's number one. The second is, how much does it change what I do today? Like, you know, they talk about moving your cheese. I can't remember. There was a book, right? You know, yeah. don't move my cheese, right? Yeah, yeah, was, you know, yeah. how, much does it, how much does it move my cheese? A lot of new technologies really move the doctor's cheese, and now, you know, they don't like that. But, you know, for the better, you know, maybe there's a, there, that's, that's a good thing. 
And then third, it's economic, right? How much does it cost compared to the alternative? Will it make me more money? Will it save me money, right? That cost effectiveness piece really comes into play in healthcare because, you know, the, the reality is most hospitals in this country run on a very slim margin, really, really slim, you know, sometimes negative 1%, maybe at break even, maybe just at 1%. So understanding the cost, you can't just go grab new technologies without really understanding how it all works. But I, I think on, when it comes to administration, that's the first area of, of AI that's really going to impact things for sure. Yeah, and then there's that other piece too that always complicates it, which is so frustrating as a practitioner. It just drives you crazy. But it's uh, and will the payers pay for it? I mean, even if it's proven to be uh, much more effective and efficient, uh, it doesn't mean that yeah. the payers are going to pay for that service. Boy, I mean, you're right on. <laughs> you know, that's you know, in, in the United States. Um, it's it's such an odd, you know, healthcare system because you know, the the end, you know, you or I as patients, we don't always end up paying for the service. Obviously, our, our insurance does, and our employer, you know, buys the the, the you know they, they fund the the insurance, and you know, so it's it's really such a complicated system. Medicare, you know, Medicare looks at really only the over sixty five population. Of course, they should. And so things that are good for, you know, an under 30 population doesn't make it to Medicare, so they're not going to pay for it. So, yeah, it's it, it really it really is challenging, and, and there's no shortage of what they call payers, you know, in this country, you know, huge payers like United Healthcare, down to really small, play, you know, payers and local plans and, and, and Medicaid and, and all those kind of things. It'll take some time, I think, for the payers to recognize the value of AI, uh, particularly in the work that we do. So as an example of that, you know, in other countries, right, in the UK, it's a nationalized health system, right? Now there's good and bad to both. But in a nationalized healthcare system, for the most part, there's one payer, right? Is you know, the UK government and, and of course the citizens of the UK government. There's other ways to pay, but I won't get into all that. But generally that's how it works. And so they think about it from from a national perspective. And and we're actually, you know, pretty close to the end of a two-year study that was actually funded by uh, the NHS there in the UK uh, to look at the cost-effectiveness of AI, specifically for prostate uh, in, UK, in the UK. And I think what they'll do coming out of that study is they'll look and say, okay, how did this impact patient care? How did this impact cost-effectiveness? And we're hopeful, of course, that the study is also going to indicate that there's value to the UK government paying for the AI to do its work up front on diagnosis because it's going to ultimately save money and save lives downstream, right? And so that's, you know, we need more of those sort of what they call health economic studies and outcome uh, research type studies uh, in the US to help us with the payers as well, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's back up here just a little bit. So uh, you said that, um, you know, you're a Navy jet pilot. So uh, tell us, uh, what do you think that you learned in that role, which I think most yeah. people would think would be an exciting, thrilling, and adrenaline rush? <laughs> uh, you know, how do you think that those lessons helped yeah. you uh, become an executive staff level and eventually a CEO working yeah. with people in the business world? Well, I, and if I said it, I apologize. I, I didn't fly jets. So <laughs> I have to sort of really, you know, it's interesting because the Navy has like two airplanes that don't fly off an aircraft carrier. I happen to fly one of them. So okay. it's called, this, thing, this thing was called the P-3 Orion. It was this really large aircraft. 
And what we did is we hunted submarines, right? They sort of flow really low over the ocean, which by the way, like I'm talking like 200 feet off the water, you know, dropping these things in the water called sonar buoys that listen for sonar, uh, submarines under the water. And we sort of played this game of chess with a, with a submarine captain who's under the water and we're over you know, on top of the water trying to track where this guy is and, and all that kind of stuff. So that was pretty thrilling. I mean, but, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the, the Navy was such a great, you know, um, what I would call, you know, learning space, a great classroom as a leader. Because, you know, number one, they expect you from day one, especially as an officer, you're leading, right? You, you come right out of officer candidate school, you go into something called basic officer leadership training, you know, you, you, you show up in a squadron, you're leading people, you know, and I, I look back on, you know, 26 years of, you know, coming out of, of college, and it was only like one or two years that I didn't lead people. I didn't have somebody's livelihood. And sometimes when the Navy's your life sort of, you know, in my managerial hands in some way. And so I think, I think that impresses upon you at a very young and early age that leadership is a privilege. You know, it's, it's not something that you take lightly I don't take anybody's career lightly. I don't take people's livelihood lightly. I don't take the fact that I have, you know, 118 people now, you know, you know, who's, and my decisions impact what, how they live and what they do. Right. And, and so I, I think that was a big piece of it, right. It's sort of the impact, you know, it's, it's not only the mission that you're in is life or death, you know, when you're in the military, uh, but, but at a very young age, you know, people's lives depend on you and your decision making. And so you, you just, you can't be flip about that. So I think that's, that's number one. Um, you know, number, number two to me, you know, you learn through the course, you know, and of course I was in combat and I served in, in 2003 and, and we served in combat situations in Iraq. And, and so, you know, again, you just sort of really think about um, preparation you know, like I, I can't, and I you know if I can say this, I can't half-ass this, <laughs> right? You know, I think a lot of people sort of get up, I'm going to go do my thing and, and try to get home and do as good as I can. You know, I, I really approach each day now, and I always have in the last 20 years, particularly in the military, you know, how do I prepare for the day? How do I prepare for meetings? How am I ensuring that I'm giving as much of myself to my teams? Because that's what's required. You know, it's what's required of, of a leader and it's what's required uh, in this space. And if you're not doing that, you're doing your teams a disservice. And I think people people see that, right? I think we've all had bosses or managers or leaders who clearly were phoning it in or, you know, who weren't giving their time to you or, or just there to, you know, get to their next step in the, you know, in the, in the ladder. I don't look at it that way. I, I want to be sure that I'm always present and prepared for my team. And, and if I'm not, you know, be sure up to apologize for it and, and get back to being that. So I think those are two really big lessons, you know, the military taught me, uh, you know, just the impact of, of being a leader and, and just being sure you, you show up every day. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you also said that, you know, through your journey, you've had a lot of smart, innovative people to learn from. And, yeah. you know, what strategies would you uh, tell young leaders that are uh, you know, wanting to, to yeah. you know, do on a seminar. How do they become a sponge and learn from others? What, 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 what do you do to gain that experience and that knowledge to prepare you for these uh, roles later in life? You know, I, I, it's a great question, Steve. And I, I, um, 
I certainly wish I'd heard podcasts, you know, 25 years ago. I don't think it was on the podcast 25 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's you know, a lot of them now. Gonna... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no question, right? Um, but it, I, I think, you know, I have a son who's going into college and I have a daughter right behind him. You know, just trying to get, you know, young leaders to think about, I, I think it's two things. One is, you know, find a mentor. Like whatever, whatever you're doing, you know, and that's the question. I think sometimes it's maybe a little bit awkward or I don't know if I can do that, but there's somebody you respect, whether you're in a company or outside of a company or social media these days, you can hold the people, hey, ask them, hey, here's here's who I am. Here's what I'm really passionate about. I see that you're passionate about it too, but you're 10 years ahead of me. Could, could I ask you to be my mentor? You know, could, I, could you help me in my career development? I think that's a proactive way to approach things. And I, you know, if someone came to me, I imagine Steve, you'd probably be the same way. If there was, you know, somebody early in their career who, who approached me that way, maybe I have the time for maybe not, but I, I would be very impressed. <laughs> Number one, I'd be very impressed. I'd be like, wow, you know, and, here's somebody. And I would yeah, agree right. with you that, that, you know, if people do that, I, I, I just can't imagine uh, there'd be very few people that would say no. You know, so I, I, I just the guts to ask, and 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 then of course you have to show up and, and show you you care and you're interested. But beyond that, I think there's very few people that wouldn't uh, say sure. You know, no, I, I think you're exactly right, and and um, you know certainly if you're asking like you know the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, it may be a little bit more difficult. But you know certainly aim high, and and you know there's lots of of, of leaders, you know business leaders who yeah say yeah absolutely how can I help. Um, you know, that's number one, asking for a minute, just, just being proactive about it. But then just secondly, you know, I, we talked about this earlier. It's like, how can I put myself, um, in as many opportunities to sort of be there, you know, to be there in the place where the really smart person is talking, you know, to go to conferences, you know, ask for self-development, you know, when you go to a conference and you listen to a speaker, don't just listen to the speaker and go off, you know? Know, hand the speaker after and say, hey, that was really impressive talk. Here's who I am. Would love to connect with you. How can we do more of those kind of things? And, you know, I, that's that's sort of a really extroverted way to think about it, like being very proactive, you know, th those sort of things. But it, and it's hard, right? I think it's really hard. If you're if you're if you're not as as maybe as extroverted about, hey, I don't feel comfortable doing it, there's there's plenty of ways to 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 still ask for a mentor or learn from your peers and your colleagues. Um, you know, maybe without being as, as bold, but, uh, you know, listen, right. Just listen, be a sponge, ask for the help. That's, that's, that's the, the best advice you can, you can get. You know, I have a real life story on that. I was speaking at a, at a university one time about, um, my profession of physical therapy. And at the end of it, some student, uh, of physical therapy came up and, and was saying, Hey, it really sounds like, you know, a lot of what you said resonated with me and whatever. And, and I know that you're not in patient care anymore, you're CEO, but could I just come and shadow you for two or three days? And I kind of yeah. said, well, well, I'm on the phone, I'm in meetings. I mean, what am I going to do with this person? You know? And I kind of said, Oh, I don't know if that's really what you're looking for. Said, no, no, I want, I want to, I just, I just hang out. I, I'll be like a shadow. And I'm like, okay. So he came and, and he did that. He listened to me on the phone. He, he watched when I had meetings with people. He came to meetings with me, uh, you know, did my thing. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting, and, uh, but I didn't think it was life-changing. And I got a letter from him like six years later and said, hey, I just want you to know this is what I'm doing now. 
and what I observed in those three days with you totally changed my trajectory and I'm doing this now because of what the time I spent with you and it just kind of blew me away but I I think there's huge opportunity for just hanging out with people too. No, it's, it's a great point. You know, sometimes we, you know, we get into these positions, Steve, and yeah, I love that your story because you're like, you know, I'm just working, you know, I'm doing my thing here, right? But to that person, they're like, you know, amazed and fascinated and like, wow, how can I, you know, wow, I didn't, you know, I saw how you did this or I saw how you did that. And, and that's just, that's, yeah, it can be really, you know, life-changing for someone. I think too, you know, I'll, you know, looking at myself, you know, as we have this conversation, um, you know, I, it's, it's always hard to as leaders, right? CEOs, our time management is the hardest thing. I just was at this conference of CEOs and David Ricks was there as the CEO of Eli Lilly. He was talking about his time and, and, and how, you know, he's got a lot of really smart people under him and, and he wants to spend, you know, X amount of time, hours, percentage of his time, you know, doing high level things and doing, you know, these things. And he says he audits his time. He says every quarter has an assistant go back and look at how many hours he spent in meetings, you know, that maybe were reactive and all these kind of things. But my point is, you know, trying to carve out time to help people, right. And, and being sure we're paying it forward um, to help, you know, younger, you know, either members of our team or other people to ensure that we're sort of passing the torch a little bit, I think is important. I haven't done as much of that mostly because I probably have the David Ricks problem. I, my, my time is, you know, management's not so good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we all struggle with that. Uh, you know, yeah. and, and thinking about your position now, um, you know, I, in a company like yours, that's uh, very scientific and, and, you know, 80% of your employees, I think, are probably scientists and engineers. Yeah. So how does a people yeah. guy like you connect with uh, uh, those personality types? <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's fun, right? I, I think, you know, for me, I'm, I've always been a curious, you know, person, you know, I, I like to ask a lot of questions, you know, maybe drives my, you know, my head of technology crazy, uh, you know, my head of AI science a little nuts, but, but at the same time, I, I think they're, because I'm not a technical guy, right? You're, you're spot on, right? I have a PhD, but it's in health economics. Uh, it's got nothing to do with creating AI or coding, you know, I, I can't even, I can't even really code anything, <laughs> to be clear, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, so so, but I, I ask questions. You know, I'll see some of my team sitting there, and you know, and they've got their screens up, and it looks like the Matrix to me. You know, green dots floating down, and I'm like, oh, how's Keanu Reeves doing? You know, is he winning? Right? You know, and <laughs> just sort of you know break the ice and um, and just ask questions, right? And I think they know I care. I think they know that. Um, I'm interested in, in how they do their work. You know, as, as CEOs too and as leaders, you know, we start to learn these questions that really are, uh, you know, people think are very insightful, but at the end of the day, they're pretty generic. You're like, oh, well, have you thought about the metrics to, to really define that, right? You know, like, oh, wow, that's a really great question. Well, I mean, I could ask that to anybody about anything. <laughs> you know, there's sort of these, these sort of questions. But, but, they, but they, they're impactful because they, they get people thinking. And at the end of the day, what I want from my, my technical teams, my executive team, anyone really, you know, is I want them always thinking about new and different ways to approach a problem uh, to try to get to the best idea, right? That's, that's, that's sort of the way we lead is, is uh, we want the best idea to win. You know, we want to have debate, really rigorous debate, and ultimately make a decision and, 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 and commit to that decision. But uh, you want to, you know, try to surface as many interesting ideas as possible. So 
sort of a long-winded answer to say, you know, just ask a lot of questions. Well, and, that, <laughs> and I think that brings up the point. I read somewhere, I came across something that, that you actually took what you called a listening tour. So uh, yeah. tell us what a listening tour is and, and what did you find out of that? Yeah, we're, we're not a, you know, we're not a huge company. We're a startup, but I mean, we're about 110, 115 employees. And, you know, 2022 for a lot of startups, kind of a rough year. And I had taken over the reins of the company early in, in 2022 and sort of went through a year. And and, um, and I said to my staff, I said, you know, it's probably time. I, I, need, to, I need to talk to everyone. You know, I probably had interacted with all it, you know, 15 people a lot, another 10 people a little bit, another 10 people after that, maybe once or twice. But then there was probably 50, 60 people I've never really talked to directly, right? I've been on. You know, town halls, we do an all-hands call every week where we have different people speak and those kind of things. And so I just thought it was the right thing to do is to spend 20, 30 minutes with everyone, you know, and, and really just listen. Just say, hey, what's going on? You know, how do you feel about where the company's headed? Uh, how do you feel about our role in, in this in this thing? How do you feel about the mission? Um, you know, what's concerning you? You know, and it was plenty of people. It's interesting. There's a lot of people who had a lot of thoughts. And we're we're very happy for the opportunity to chat. And I appreciated that too. I think there was a few folks, you know, maybe more, you know, on the introverted side of things who, you know, why does the CEO want to talk to me and what's going on here? Right. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, But, but ultimately it was great, you know, and I, uh, you know, it only took, you know, it took three, I couldn't do more than three or four today. Like it just got too much, right. Just a lot of listening. Plus you had a lot of other things going on, but, you know, do two or three or, you know, interviews a day and get through it and really spend time and then start to aggregate, you know, what are the big themes, right? What are, what are people, you know, talking about? What are the questions they're asking me? And I, I think it really helps because I can go back to my leadership team and like, look, here's what I heard from the team. And here's the big questions that they're asking. And uh, that may be counter to what other people have heard or, you know, maybe an area we need to go dig into. There's certainly a couple of those where we said, Hey, I think we need to dive into this specific thing and get with my head of people and culture and say, Hey, you know, this is a concern. How can we address this? And, and you know, I, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I just going to say, what do you think people really want in their leadership of a company when, when you spend the time to do that, which I think is, is, is right. fantastic. I, it's just like, what, you know, what, what are you hearing? What do they want? What do they expect from the leadership yeah. of a company today? You know, this is just my opinion. And, and I, I think it works because I think we've had really, really good engagement with our teams, and I, I've been this way for a long time, is, is just transparency, right? I, I think it's, it's you know, what people want is to be treated like, you know, grown-up adults, you know, give them as much information as they possibly can have. They, they can't know everything about what's going on, right, and all the you know, high-level strategic stuff or whatever, but ultimately give them information to be able to make their own decisions. You know, I, I, when I first got here, um, somebody asked me on all hands, well, what's your retention plan? And I said, well, here's, here's my retention plan. I said, I want everybody in this company to wake up and love the work they're doing every day, to have a really good relationship with their manager or boss or feel like they're getting coached, to have colleagues and comrades that they can trust and rely on, that they love to work with, that they believe in the mission and the vision of the company, that they feel like leadership cares about them, and and that um, and that the work has purpose. And then, oh, by the way, number seven at the very bottom of the list, that they feel like they're being paid fairly or compensated fairly for that work. That's my retention plan. 
And I said, if, if we do that as a company, as a leadership, as a culture, if people wake up every morning, I mean, why would you leave? Right. right? Yeah. I mean, and I, and I think you can look at all the HR, you know, surveys that have been done, you know, compensation is never number one. Right. And I think a lot of what is number one is I don't like my boss. <laughs> right. So we, we, we try to, um, we try to invest in our new leaders because of that, because we don't want, you know, a frontline manager, you know, causing issues in that way. And so we try to do that. We try to have all our managers really understand what's going on there. So, yeah, I think it's, it's really about being honest, being transparent as much as you can, giving as much information to people as much as we can. And, and offering that culture that's trust, you know, that has trust and, and purpose. And I think a lot of a lot of team members really respond to that. Yeah, I think you're right on. I, I know that, you know, as I work the people that I work with now, I just tell them, you know, people will accept a decision if they just know why. Tell them why. You know, here's yeah. the decision, yeah. but tell them this is why yeah. we're making the decision. Even if they don't agree with yeah. it, if they understand yeah. the why, they're more likely to say, okay, I can live with that. You know, that's transparency. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I've actually, I, I say to my team, I said, I'll tell you what I can tell you when I can tell you it, whether you like the message or not, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you why, or what, you know, why this is, why this going on. Cause I agree with you hundred percent. I think what most people, you know, what most people don't like, and this is me and you and everybody included, is we don't like uncertainty. We don't like, you know, I mean, you know, right now it's an uncertain world. Uh, a lot of stuff going on. I mean, global events. I mean, had to address you know the Israel situation on my all hands this morning. Oh my gosh. You know we have team we, we have team members in Ukraine. You know and and dealt with you know still dealing with that you know situation and obviously inflation and recession. So it's it's just a very uncertain unsettling world, right? And I think you know especially if you look at social media, I, I've tried to swear off as much social media as I can because it's just bad for you. That's Andy Moy's opinion. But generally, you know, generally, you know, generally, you want to give people at least some faith and trust that their leadership is 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 giving them as much information as possible and are responding to these kind of things. So, yeah, I agree. Give them, give them, give them the reasons. Give them the answers. You can tell them why. Um, but, but yeah, give them that transparency. And uh, in a in a, a sidestep here, I just I, I'm impressed that you coming out of the military, you know, have such that approach. I can hear it in your voice. I can tell that that's important to you. But in the military, uh, I'd, that's probably done much less, you know. Uh, this, this is the decision, and, and do it, and don't ask questions, right? So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very yeah. different approach, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And for, and for you know, I've, I've said this before, the other things. I mean, military leadership um, is a very different kind of leadership, right? And I And I... And I, it's, you know, one of my heroes and people I look up to, you know, when I was young, and certainly my dad is a military officer, but also Colin Powell, right? Colin Powell to me really represented the best of a lot of leadership, um, you know, both in his time as a general in the army, but also in his time in, in civil service. And he just had these really, you know, great, you know, sort of tools for helping, you know, navigate this kind of stuff. But, but you're right, military leadership is like, Sometimes I have to tell you to do something. You don't get to ask why. Like your life depends on you doing the thing I told you to go do. I think, you know, in the world that we live in, Steve, and, and in a business world, corporate world, it's a much harder leadership, right? I mean, you're, you're trying to cobble together people of all different backgrounds, of all different motivations. Everybody has something different happening in their lives. And you're really trying to motivate them to be, you know, see a vision for a company, uh, knowing all the time that they can quit anytime they want, right? It's that well, you know, kind of deal. 
and, and really get them excited about the work they do every day, the work that we're trying to do in, in order to, to be successful all around. So I think, I think the, the leadership approach has to be different, you know, certainly than it is in the, in the, in the military. And, and maybe, maybe seeing that in the military has helped, you know, foster that. Me. Like, I, hey, I'm going to try something different here. It's not about this other thing's not working. Yeah. yeah. Well said. You know, in anticipation of our discussion today, is there anything that I haven't asked you or that uh, we haven't covered that you want to make sure we get into the program today? You know, no, I, I appreciate the work you're doing. And I, I think, again, I would have loved to uh, listen to some leadership podcasts, you know, 20 and 25 years ago. Um, but no, this is really the big lessons for me, right? It's just, it's really be about being proactive in your own career. Um, you know, don't take leadership lightly. You know, I, I think that's, it, it really is a privilege. It's, it's a privilege to get to say, you know, hey, I'm the, you know, you know, quote unquote leader of this group of individuals. We're all trying and striving to do things, you know, at least in our, our, our sake for, for the betterment of humanity, at least we think so. Um, and that's a privilege, right? And so don't forget that. I think a lot of people do forget that. I, I think too, um, you know, you know, another thing I, I tell to a lot of my younger you know, teammates and, and leaders is like, hey, you, you really got to, you can be a leader without the title. Right. You, you, there's, there's no reason people can't look up to you. You see this in a lot of organizations, right, Steve? You see where there are actually pockets of leadership that have nothing to do with the actual manager of that group. You know, like you see in a room and the, and the staff manager comes in, they say, all right, here, the team, this is what we're going to do. And everyone turns and looks at Joe, you know, or they look at, you know, Betty and, and because they want to know what Betty or Joe thinks, right? And Betty, you know, you know, so... There's, there's no reason, you know, I think that kind of gets lost in a lot of young leaders. Look, I have to get the title. I have to get the right, title. I have to get right. the title. No, no. Um, what you need to do is is exhibit leadership, exhibit the kind of traits that people are willing to follow and, and say, hey, wow, this person's leading by example or doing all the right things or, man, just really, you know, insightful or helpful. Right? Just be helpful. Right? That's, that's one way people say, hey, I really want to follow this person. But... You know, there's absolutely no reason you, you have to. And, and if you're doing those things, man, ultimately the titles come, right? I think the smart leaders will go, well, I got to get Joe in a leadership position. I got to get Betty in a leadership position. Like, that's yeah. super important. Well, that's a classic so, yeah. uh, classic case of just leading from any level. And uh, Yeah, that's know, exactly right. Yeah, yeah yep. that's so true. So, uh, Andy, at this point in the interview, I always ask my guests the same common question. And that question is, in relationship uh, to leadership, tell me, what is a pearl of wisdom that you could leave us with today? Um, a pearl of wisdom that I can leave, leave you with is, is that pertains to leadership. Um, so I'm going to steal one. And again, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of, of reading a lot, you know, absorbing a lot of material. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff out there. But I, I just think if you haven't read, um, you know, Colin Powell's book, it, it worked for me. It's, it's a fantastic primer, I think, in leadership. But sort of, sort of rule number one is you know, leadership, good leadership means ticking people off, right, is another word he uses. But, but what he means by that is if, and I've heard it said another way, and maybe I'll say it the other way I've heard it, is that when you come into a leadership role and you seek to be liked first and then you seek to be respected, you'll end up getting neither. I don't know who said that, but that was a, a quote I heard recently. And, and, and what it means is that you have to you have to take a stand, right? You have to ensure that 
you're you're leading honorably, you know, as we said, with transparency, you're making decisions, but you can't try to get everybody to like you. Um, you. You can't refuse to make hard decisions, maybe about poor performers, as an example, because your really high performers will look at that and say, well, Andy is just going to tolerate this person. So what am I doing? Work, working my butt off, you know, if he's just going to tolerate this. So, you know, those are the kind of things I think as young leaders you miss. I think you get a young a new leadership position and you think you want everybody to like you and, and you sort of, you know, get everybody in that position. But ultimately it means, you know, taking a stand, you know, making hard decisions. And that's not easy. Like it takes time to, to it's a muscle that you have to exercise. And, and I think about that every day. I think about, you know, if a decision comes up, you know, am I really, you know, making a stand here based on what we believe, based on what the executive team believes, and ultimately saying, hey, this is the thing that we're going to do. It may not be popular, but we're doing it because it's either the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do for the business, or we have enough information to know it's it's the right thing. So uh, that's a big pearl of wisdom for me, right? And, and don't get everybody to like you, and, and you have to ultimately make hard decisions that people are not going to like. Well, that's that's well said, well said. Andy, uh, this has uh, been a real pleasure. Uh, uh, your journey is fascinating. Uh, uh, you got your, as we said early on, you know, you've done a lot of different things, but, uh, you know, we're in a position now where, at least for my, uh, you know, probably uninformed opinion <laughs> to a sense, uh, um, it, it's AI doing what the what the brilliance of AI can do, you know, and, and it's exciting right. to see that it can do something that, you know, really helps mankind and does uh, does some wonderful things. And I, I think uh, I wish you the best of luck. I hope it continues to be successful. And 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 I think it's significant that you're uh, the only company that has FDA approval uh, for this right now. That's 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 leading the way. That's that's being the pioneer in the field. So congratulations on that. And I wish wish you the best of luck going forward. Steve, it's been a real pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Uh, best of luck to you as well. And thanks again for the opportunity. Okay. Have a great rest of your day and take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com and that is orange the word.coaching.com and go to the media center and click on podcasts or video gallery you can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com